New Year, New ASAP Now cast. Welcome everyone to the January ASAP Now podcast. Hopefully, the magazine has hit your mailbox and we are here to chat podcast. As a reminder, I'm Amy Ho, ER doctor and ASAP Now assistant editor, and your host of this podcast, Nowcast. So it is a new year, but we're bringing back the same old format. Every episode, we try to cover something from the magazine to highlight and also some podcast-only content. Now, over a little bit of a break during the winter, I've been watching a lot of discussion on burnout and trauma in the emergency department. The ER is a tough place. I think it's even tougher when we're doing waiting room medicine and patients are sick and there's lots of metrics. And I think there's a growing feeling in emergency medicine of our field has only become harder and is only becoming harder. So what we're covering here as our podcast-only content is actually a discussion with Dr. Rich Kamen about his experience with a type of therapy called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. It's also known as EMDR. And the reason I really like this is because it's a type of wellness and therapy that isn't mandatory fun days or recommending yoga, but it's something that you can apply to your own daily life. And it's funny, since we uh, recorded this podcast, I've actually been seeing a lot of mention of EMDR by people in healthcare. Um, There's actually a Facebook group post in EM Docs recently discussing EMDR, and Dr. Rich Kamen has a story about his experience, unfortunately, with a mass shooting and being the ER doctor responding, and how he used EMDR to help him move beyond that trauma. What we're also covering on this episode is something purely clinical and from the magazine, which is Dr. Anton Hellman's article in Syncope and ASAP's new clinical policy on syncope. We'll be discussing some of the takeaways that we had from that policy. And I thought that there was actually some good ways of applying direct clinical practice to how we get a history out of patients who present with syncope. So wanted to be sure to cover this one. With that, we'll go ahead and jump right into 2023's Nowcast. Hey everyone at ASAP Nowcast. I am really pleased to be joined by two very special guests, um, Dr. Debbie Korn and Dr. Rich Kamen, who are here to talk to us about a concept called EMDR. Now, when I heard about EMDR, my first thought was, oh, that's great because that's actually the same acronym as emergency medicine doctor. And Dr. Debbie Korn is a clinical psychologist and trauma and EMDR therapist for the past 30 years and co-author of the book with that exact title, Every Memory Deserves Respect. And Dr. Rich Kamen is actually an ER doctor and EMS physician at University of Connecticut, who is a benefactor of this concept. So first, I want to thank you both so much for joining us today. Now, Dr. Korn, I would love to hear your translation of what is EMDR, because punchline, it is not emergency medicine doctor in this context. (laughs) Correct. 
So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. So desensitization refers to the reduction of distress, fear, anxiety. Reprocessing refers to the reevaluation or the restructuring of thoughts and beliefs and the transformation of one's sense of self relative to past traumatic experiences. And then there's the eye movement component. Now, Francine Shapiro, the developer of EMDR, accidentally discovered that intentionally moving your eyes horizontally back and forth while focusing on a traumatic memory leads to a reduction in the vividness and the emotional intensity of that memory. She developed an effective protocol for treating PTSD and trauma-related problems using this bilateral stimulation or back and forth eye movements and published the very first research study on this approach in 1989, hence the name Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. EMDR is a, a memory-focused psychotherapy that helps people deal with the impact and legacy of trauma and adverse experiences in their lives, and it's based on the idea that psychological problems are related to a failure to adequately process traumatic experiences or memories. So unprocessed traumatic memories kind of frozen or locked in our nervous system continue to affect how we perceive things, decisions we make, reactions we have, the beliefs we hold about ourselves and others. And present day triggers activate these unprocessed traumatic memories leading to symptoms that cause ongoing distress. And in EMDR therapy, we help clients access and activate their unprocessed traumatic memories with a set of focused questions. And then we jumpstart the brain's information processing system using bilateral stimulation. And over the years, we've discovered that other forms of what we call bilateral stimulation are also effective in reducing distress. So we might have clients track our fingers back and forth with their eyes or track a light that moves back and forth, or we might have them listen to alternating tones with headphones, or we might tap back and forth on their hands as they rest them in their lap. But with EMDR reprocessing, a client's distress eventually decreases and relevant adaptive information located in other parts of the brain, helpful present day perspectives get integrated. So patients arrive at a place where they can genuinely say and feel it's over. I'm safe now. It wasn't actually my fault. I'm in control now. I have choices. They really move the past into the past. And there are shifts in thoughts, feelings, behaviors, physical sensations. Healing involves a significant reduction in the level of disturbance experienced in one's body. So that's a really great explanation of EMDR. And how this kind of came to us was actually in thinking about how could this therapeutic modality help us as ER doctors? Because I can remember like very vivid details of some of my most shocking or just sad or emotional cases. So does that mean then that I've really been traumatized by them because of that? Well, in our book, we define trauma as any experience that feels overwhelming triggers strong negative emotions like shame, guilt, terror, grief, and involves a sense of powerlessness or intense vulnerability. And trauma is both objective and subjective, right? It's both the event and the experience of the event. No two people experience a trauma in the same way. 
So it's not just what happened to you, but also what happens inside of you after the experience. And we know that the greater the number of traumas, the greater the psychological or physical toll. So to an in answer to your question, it depends. Remembering the vivid details of a shocking or sad case may or may not mean that you've been traumatized. It depends on whether that memory haunts you in some way or intrudes in on your daily life days, weeks, or months after you've wrapped up the case. It depends on how that case affects you in terms of your feelings and beliefs about yourself. You could remember the case and think to yourself, that was a really hard case, but I did the best I could, I can move on. Or you could feel a profound sense of guilt and anxiety and think to yourself, I'm a failure and I should probably quit the medical profession. About 70 to 75% of adults have experienced at least one significant trauma in their lives, though only about 20% of that group go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. People may not develop full-blown PTSD symptoms or post-traumatic stress symptoms, but that doesn't mean they haven't been affected by an event. And it's important to mention that repeated prolonged exposure to what we call small t traumas, everyday adverse experiences, discrimination, failures, losses, having limited control over things can have a significant effect on people's psyches and functioning as well. Yeah, I feel like what you've described rings true. Like, I mean, I remember the first, I mean, almost year, even after I finished residency, like every case haunted me. Like I would go home and I would for days just check the chart, make sure the patient was okay if they admitted them. If they went home, I just make sure they didn't bounce back. But that was, you know, the first several months at least, um, which is very normal, um, honestly, in the field uh, that this happens. So, so. So Dr. Kamen, um, as an ER doctor, I really want to hear, how did you come um, into EMDR as a therapeutic modality? I understand you actually had a pretty major event. Um, so, you know, my connection with EMDR came in the wake of my involvement with uh, Sandy Hook shooting. And I provide medical support for uh, a couple of teams in Connecticut, two of which were at the school in the wake of the shooting. So I was part of that response and um, I was having what actually was a very normal response to a traumatic event. And, and I think that's part of the critical importance is that, you know, what was, and I'm grateful for this, what was made very clear to me was what I should expect after having a, having experienced a very abnormal or traumatic event. And it was made very clear to me that it was going to be normal for me to not sleep and have intrusive thoughts, to be irritable and find it hard to concentrate. And they talked to me about what I could and couldn't do to make things better and make things worse. And in the wake of going through this about two and a half weeks in, and, and I had already been an emergency physician for you know 10 plus years. I'd been working with law enforcement for 10 plus years. And, and in the wake of going through this, while this was all going through, and I had support from my chair and my, my coworkers, as well as uh, folks with the FBI and the state police or the teams I work with, I ran into somebody on the street who happens to be a trauma therapist. And I hadn't seen him for a while. We had known each other professionally because we had uh, done some counseling together, me, this person, and my wife 
had done some counseling together successfully, and they very casually asked me how I was doing, and I very casually told them the truth. And um, they said, wow, that's, uh, I'm so sorry to hear about your involvement, and I, I really think I could help you uh, if you come talk to me. So I, I very quickly went in there and started hearing what this person does with folks that have suffered trauma, and not specifically emergency physicians or folks that have responded to mass shootings, but folks that have responded to trauma or have been exposed to trauma globally, and, and that this intervention was shown to work very effectively, not just specifically for one type of trauma or another. And for me, uh, EMDR really met uh, the three kind of standards that I think about any intervention. Uh, for me, I was confident that I wanted to try because I was convinced that it was likely to help, it was not likely to hurt, and it was going to be reasonably cost because I had insurance, thankfully, and I had a way to take care of this. And to me, any intervention that's likely to help, not likely to hurt, and doesn't cost a lot of money, is worth trying. And um, that's how I got connected. And I, I had a, a remarkable experience with it. Um, it, it absolutely decreased, um, absolutely helped me put into perspective the, the overactivity and the response I was having and I, I can honestly say I can actually think more clearly and deliberately about the event now than I was ever able to before doing it. So it's actually made the whole event much more clear and, and kind of collated for me. Yeah, and I'm, I'm super glad to hear that. Like we've talked about this on the show previously, but, you know, mass um, casualty events are are unfortunately becoming more common. And I think for ER physicians in particular, it's almost like an expectation, honestly, that we'll deal with something very traumatic, either as traumatic as Sandy Hook or even just individual cases. Um, for a question for either of you are given like the work that we do as physicians, um, do you feel like there are um, particular special considerations about how we should handle cognitive loads or how we should handle, um, trauma because, you know, we have difficult cases all the time. Um, there's probably warning signs to know when coping strategies aren't working. You know, ER doctors are kind of known for being, uh, a little adventure seeking and maybe that's actually a coping me mechanism. Like what are your thoughts about what makes physicians, um, ER physicians in particular, uh, special in this body of work and how it can benefit? Well, I would assume that physicians spend a lot of time thinking and talking, right? Inquiring, analyzing, hypothesizing. I'm sure that the cognitive load on any given day is heavy. I assume that ER docs move quickly and probably don't have a lot of time to attend to what's happening inside, to reflect on what they're feeling or experiencing in their bodies. We know that trauma affects mind, brain, body, and spirit. Traditional talk therapy, even with a, a deeply compassionate and supportive therapist, uh, is often not enough to quell the involuntary, biologically driven, physiological responses of the body and brain associated with unprocessed trauma locked in our nervous system. So EMDR therapy offers something unique. It's memory focused from the get-go and oriented to all aspects of experience, emotions, sensations, impulses, 
thoughts and beliefs and imagery, other sensory experiences, the primary emphasis is not on words or interpretation or insight. Instead, it's on processing the traumatic memories that are responsible for symptoms and difficulties. And EMDR therapy just tends to be less cognitive and much more oriented to tracking emotional and somatic shifts over the course of processing. It's not to say that there's not insight and reflection as part of the process, but changes in thinking are a byproduct of focusing and processing emotional and somatic experience. The work can be done with very few words. It's not even necessary for clients to describe a traumatic experience or what's coming up for them as they bring attention to it. Yeah, and that, I think that's really helpful because we, I mean, you talk about do-overs in the book, but in medicine, we're designed to do do-overs. Like we have M&M conference, like morbidity and mortality conference, where we literally relive extremely difficult cases when big auditoriums full of our peers critique and say what they think that they would do differently. And then, you know, similarly, there's, of course, um, like malpractice suits, which require months and months and months of, um, of do-overs. Like, does that make it more difficult, you think, for physicians? Because in a way, we're forced to relive these a lot of times. Let me begin, if I may, by defining what we mean by do-overs. Or when we, in EMDR therapy, when we introduce a do-over, let me just explain what that is. Uh, in traumatic situations, people often find themselves feeling powerless with regard to taking action, speaking up, fighting back, or fleeing. They often feel trapped. Perhaps they're not big enough or strong enough or fast enough to take on a perpetrator. Because of the overwhelming nature of trauma, people freeze. They get immobilized. In EMDR therapy, as people process their traumas, they sometimes spontaneously imagine a do-over, a chance to say or do now what they couldn't say or do then. They are able to discharge the energy or express the words that they've been holding inside for the longest time. And if this doesn't happen spontaneously, we invite the client to imagine speaking up, fighting back, etc. We also might invite a client to imagine bringing support or care or comfort through words or actions to their traumatized self, to the part of themselves that carries the terror or guilt or sense of defectiveness. With do-overs, there's an opportunity for completion, uh, for closure, for emotional repair, uh, for, you know, ultimately for healing. And, you know, Rich, maybe you want to say something about M&Ms in particular. Yeah, well, you know, Amy, and, and, and without having sat in the same events together, I, I'm confident that we've sat in the same events together. And, and the reality is, is that uh, in a perfect world, um, M&Ms could be a do-over. Uh, and they could also be what they're designed to be, which is a critically important process of, uh, of reflection and, and quality assurance and quality improvement and, you know, kind of doing the best for our patients by being reflective and responsible. Um, and on the other hand, sometimes they're an unbelievably painful, malignant 
kind of way of uh, belittling people or humiliating people. And, and, and how that process takes form is, is so dependent on who's running the process or facilitating the process. So I guess I would say, you know, I've been involved in both. I, I've been involved with morbidity and mortality as well as, unfortunately, a, uh, a litigation and, and I would say, you know, for m and I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm super blessed. I got a supportive group of folks I work with, my chair, folks responsible for my care, et cetera. Um, you know, the, that process for me locally is supportive and helpful. Um, and that in a perfect world, I think we could start building into it a better understanding of how these types of processes or the understanding that we may have made a mistake or the awareness that our our care did not find the mark we wanted it to and, and how hard and traumatic that can be. So we might actually have a real opportunity to install some do-overs within this and get both done. Make sure that we're doing the work that we need to do to assure the quality of the care we provide and make sure that through that process, we're also taking care of the folks who are providing that care and not doing any more harm that may be necessary. Um, I, I, I think understanding the impact that this has on folks and normalizing it, making sure that people understand that, uh, you know, the tremendous overlap between stressful events and our response to those, and unfortunately things like PTSD is fairly dramatic. And I, I, I'm sure Debbie will talk about this. And the reality is, is that the better we understand this and the more we normalize it, the more we have an opportunity to install a more healthy process within the tradition that we're already embroiled in. Yeah. And I, I think that's so super helpful because, I mean, you guys touch on a, a couple things that are really important here, like uh, malignancy definitely exists in the culture of medicine. I think M&M is one of those things that historically falls under there, but you make the really good point that, you know, with some of these strategies, perhaps it could actually be more closure than it is um, scarring. And kind of with that train of thought, um, I mean, Debbie, you said this earlier also, like ER doctors are running around. We do not often take time to sit and introspect. Um, we, you know, are very guilty of doing that. Even, even after things have slowed down, we still don't do it. Are there any simple takeaways for ER doctors in terms of mental wellness or just post-trauma, post-difficult case coping mechanisms you guys have? Rich, you want to start? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. And I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a couple of um, kind of couple of stark realities that I think about on a regular basis. Um, number one, uh, I have signed up for, asked for, and continue to train and prepare myself to be subjective, but to be rather to be subjected to a lot of risks every time I walk into work. And I'm not talking about the work I do outside the hospital that is a, a, a unique kind of different level of risk or different type of risk. I'm talking about the same risk that we all walk into every time we go into the emergency department. And, and I can speak for myself and we've all heard the stories of I've been assaulted verbally, physically. I've watched my coworkers uh, be suffer that. Um, I, I've watched uh, just in in trying to do my best. Uh, well, hold on, let's strike that. I, I I I feel like I have willingly signed up 
and go to work understanding that I'm subjecting myself to a fair amount of risk and the possibility for exposure to traumatic events. So I think it's very important, again, to normalize what that looks like in folks. And the more we understand what our normal, natural response to traumatic or stressful or unusual response, uh, events are, the better we will be able to, number one, recognize them in ourselves, recognize them in our coworkers, and prepare folks for the fact that there shouldn't be stigma around the fact that they have been affected by an unusual event or uh, an untoward outcome or something that didn't go as well as they wanted it to, or one of the other very many uh, significant events that happens in the course of doing emergency medicine, assault, uh, concern for things like that. So I'm trying to be, I'm, I'm trying to phrase this a little better. Um, the more we could understand what a normal response to an abnormal event is, the more we can normalize how we will respond normally and what to look for, um, the better we'll be able to address this thing. Uh, the reality is, I think, a huge number of us in emergency medicine go to work understanding that we're going to be subjected to risk, the risk of trauma on a lot of different levels, and that uh, most of that resolves on its own. I mean, Amy, you were just saying you, you've had lots of experiences clinically and although you were, quote-unquote, haunted, you felt like it was within the normal, right? You followed up. You did your, what you thought was your due diligence. You felt comfortable about the care you provided. And I, and I think that is normal. And the vast majority of our response to these things is normalized because of the culture that we grow up in in being trained as emergency physicians. And, and that is very unusual compared to a lot of the general public, which is why when we talk about our experience, sometimes people shudder. I mean, I, I know I've been to any number of events socially and folks want to know about all the interesting things I've seen or pulled out of orifices. And, you know, people joke about that a little bit, but we all understand that that's our normal. Um, so understanding what's normal, understanding that we're kind of being exposed to this on a regular basis, and that I think we have an opportunity to normalize that, and better prepare for what we do when we experience it. And, and that, I think, goes all the way from we had a case that didn't go as well as we'd like, and it's, it's impacting us all the way through. There's been some really horrific, traumatic event that we're involved with, and now we need some support. And I have three very simple takeaways. Number one, don't isolate seek connection and the company of other human beings, process what you're going through, what you've been through in any ways that make sense to you. Talking, writing, drawing, all of that helps. Number two, move your body, exercise, run, walk, do yoga, martial arts, bike. Exercise helps regulate your nervous system. It helps restore balance. Trauma is often associated with powerlessness and frozenness. Exercise, mo exercise moves you out of that immobilized or collapsed state. It activates your endorphins, which will help you to restore a sense of well-being. And third, don't wait. If you are struggling, seek treatment. With EMDR, it, it can be short-term, and in a matter of sessions, it could be life-changing. 
Yeah, and and you guys, I just want to thank you so much for those takeaways because I think they really speak to us as ER doctors dealing with you know the work life that we have and wellness and balance um, is so important, especially mental um, wellness for us. So I want to thank you guys again for taking the time to come on and uh, to talk with us. Thank you for having us, Amy. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone at ASAP Now. For this month's magazine feature, I wanted to highlight an article by Dr. Anton Hellman, which is in the January ASAP Now on ED syncope called ED syncope risk assessment. And the reason I chose this article is I'll be pretty honest. Syncope is one of my least favorite chief complaints. It has a differential that is pretty much every possible diagnosis in emergency medicine, everything from cardiac arrhythmia to cardiac disease to infection to old lady UTIs to stroke to seizures, drugs, trauma, encephalopathy, so on and so forth. And I think syncope also has a lot of confounders, like the patient is stressed, it was really hot outside, or one of my favorites is a Sunday church syncope, and I say favorites because we all know <laughs> on you know Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, when people were standing at church doing their thing and suddenly just pass out. And like the Sunday church syncope, because a lot of times people say they just had a religious experience. And who am I to tell them otherwise, except that they ended up in an emergency department where obliged to go and make sure nothing medical is going on. So I like this article because it highlights ASEP's new clinical policy on syncope that makes things a little simpler. One part of this article actually talks about the decision-making tools that we use frequently in emergency medicine to evaluate syncope. And just to get to the punchline, these decision tools aren't super helpful. I think there's two major decision tools being San Francisco syncope score and the Canadian syncope risk score with probably San Francisco being a little bit more popular. Again, punchline is both of them aren't amazing. For San Francisco syncope score, which as a reminder is the mnemonic chess that you probably learned in residency, that's CHF history, hematocrit less than 30, EKG abnormal, shortness of breath history, and systolic blood pressure less than 90. This score predicts the risk of serious outcomes at seven days for syncope and near syncope. And the reason I say it's not amazing is because basically it had really poor sensitivity on external study validation. So the other score was the Canadian syncope risk score. And again, not that popular, not used that often. It's a little bit more complex, so I'll let you look that one up. But basically it looks at heart disease history, your blood pressure, elevated troponin, some EKG intervals, um, and a couple other features. On validation studies of this score... They found that it was quite sensitive, but it wasn't really better than physician gestalt, which means at the end of the day, why wouldn't we just go off of our own gestalt? So this article by Dr. Hellman basically summarizes that ASAP's clinical policy on syncope is that only history, physical, and EKG are the level A recommendations. So I found this pretty shocking because I think most of us have a pretty standard workup. It definitely does contain an EKG and obviously your history and your exam. 
But most of us, I think, will get a troponin, a BMP, a CBC, a UA, probably a chest x-ray, plus minus on a BNP. And I think we're pretty familiar with this. And this helps us with both some features in the uh, Canadian and San Francisco syncope risk stratification tools. But it also just tells us things like, oh, are you anemic? Or, oh, have you had an NSTEMI? Which I find really helpful. But ASEP's clinical policy is that, again, only history, physical, and EKG are the level A recommendations. Now, this article actually goes through a couple pieces about the history and the exam that I thought were really helpful. Item one was helping differentiate syncope versus seizure. And item two was differentiating cardiac versus non-cardiac syncope. To me, I thought that there was a little bit better takeaway on the syncope versus seizure discussion. So I wanted to go over that here. But basically, how do you distinguish syncope from seizure, especially when you have bystanders that may or may not have medical background to recognize what a seizure looks like? The things that they came up with were things that favor a seizure are witness head turning, absence of presyncope symptoms like shortness of breath, dizziness. They found that urinary incontinence is actually unreliable for helping determine that something is more likely to be a seizure. But they found that tongue laceration was helpful. Similarly, seizures usually have increased muscle tone versus syncope having decreased muscle tone. Some symptoms listed that favor syncope were loss of consciousness with prolonged sitting or standing, shortness of breath and palpitations as a precursor, and like I mentioned, decreased muscle tone. One of my takeaways from this was also that jerking alone is not a seizure. Again, very difficult to tease out when you're talking to people that perhaps witness the event. But the problem is that seizures, of course, can have jerking in tonic-clonic seizures, but it also could just be myoclonic jerks, which really could be a possibly even cardiac syncope. This was an article that I highlighted as being possibly practice changing. So I wanted to direct you all to it in the January ASAP now. Again, it's the ED syncope risk assessment by Dr. Anton Hellman. Starts on the front page, so it should be easy to find. And I hope you all enjoy it. Give us feedback. So that's it for us this month. Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, huge thanks to our guests, Dr. Rich Kamen and Dr. Debbie Korn. I hope you got something from this episode that you can apply to your daily practice, whether that daily practice is on your next shift for your next syncope patient, or if it's just your daily life and how to implement EMDR therapy or any other techniques to get us through what can be a really tough job. Now, next month, we'll have a special podcast feature on women in medicine. As many of you know, February 3rd is National Women Physicians Day, which is the birthday of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to receive a medical degree. Now, we'll actually have a special episode of NowCast with our resident editor, Dr. Sophia Gorgens and Dr. Pamela Benson. And of course, next month we'll bring you a brand new magazine. In the meantime, be sure to check out the January magazine if you haven't already. Besides the Syncope article I liked, there is a great couple interviews with our editor, Dr. Cedric Dark, and the ABEM president, as well as 
the Annals Medical Editor. There's also a great feature on Dr. Ronald Roth, the team doctor for the Pittsburgh Steelers for any of you sports fans, and chat on Teslon pearls, which I found really interesting and also practice changing for me. Now, as always, we are wanting to improve Nowcast and to give you content that you want to hear. So we would love to hear any feedback from you. Tweet us if you got an idea at ASAP now, or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. The thanks to all of you guys for joining and we will chat next time.